Well, um, as Harry said, I work as an educational psychologist. That's my daytime job, um, but I also uh, do a couple of nights counselling per week. And um, later on, I'm going to introduce some books to you. Um, and I want to just start by sharing uh, Matt's story. Now, anybody that I, if I give an example of a person, obviously, it's not, it's not that all the fair details have been changed. But Matt came for counselling not too long ago. And it actually was his mother initially who said, who asked me would I see Matt for counselling. Matt was 23 when he came, and uh, he was very, very depressed. His parents had uh, got divorced when he was eight, and he lived full time with his mum and only saw his dad through his teenage years. He only saw his dad periodically, but thankfully, late teens, early twenties, his dad and himself reconnected. And the relationship was uh, was good. Now, when Matt was 20, his best friend, whom he had known since he was in preschool, was killed very tragically in a road traffic accident. Two months after that tragic accident, Matt started dating. Now, Matt was a very serious sort of fellow, and he didn't do things lightly. Uh, he was a, a committed Christian and he, he met this girl and he started dating. And his view was, he had it all sort of out in his mind, that when he was 23, he was going to marry this girl called Mary and they were going to settle down and start a family. A couple of years, and they did date for two years, two years into the relationship, uh, Mary said to Matt one night, Matt, I think that we should no longer date, that we should just remain as friends. And when Matt got that news from Mary, he was totally and utterly devastated. And the grief that he had put on hold regarding his friend's death when he was 20 came tumbling down. And in fact, for Matt, he was troubled by anxious thoughts, he was extremely depressed, he couldn't understand what was happening to him, and he lost sight of any hope for the future. In fact, he was suicidal. He had suffered, if you, if you think of it, he had suffered a triple loss. The loss of his father when he was eight years of age was very significant for him. The loss of his friend who had died when he was 20, was also very significant. And then the loss of that relationship and all his hopes for the future. Now, tonight we're going to be talking about grief. But we can experience grief after any kind of loss. And of course, tonight we're going to be talking about grief as a result of death. But there are other losses, and many of you here will be experiencing those losses now, or you have experienced them in the past. Possibly, one would be loss of health. Maybe a bad diagnosis for yourself or a member of the family. Or loss of a job. Perhaps you've had to, you've experienced redundancy, and that is particularly difficult 
for men. Or it could be like Matt and Ross's relationship through divorce or separation. Just um, a month ago, I had two children in my uh, sitting in my dinette where I do my counselling. Um, one was an 11-year-old boy. They're absolutely lovely children. One 11, one 10, little boy, going through his transfer procedure this Friday. And uh, his mother, their mother brought him them for counselling because dad walked out four months ago. And those two children, it, this was the first time actually they had articulated their own sense of loss. And in the family situation, everybody was devastated by this. But no one had spoken or had been brave enough to speak to the children because they didn't want to upset them. Granny, uncles, no one had spoken to them. So this little boy was sitting there, his tears ran down his face, and he um, and his sister both were devastated. Now, we didn't do much at that counselling session, I just listened to them and I validated that tremendous tragedy that had happened in their family. And we talked about the both two children are um, church going and, and they have a very strong faith, each of these little uh, children, and uh, they had started to believe various lies about why this had happened and we had to address those. Loss of a relationship and they were experiencing a very significant grief reaction to that. <coughs> or possibly loss of a good reputation. Someone has gossiped about you and you feel that your reputation has been lost. Or loss of the joy of parenting. I had a, a mother not too long ago who, who sat uh, in my living room and said that I feel as if I'm a total failure as a mother because her 13-year-old son was in total rebellion, loss of the joy of parenting. So with a tremendous variety of losses. But what we're going to do is simply deal with loss through death. Now, here's where we're going. This is to keep me on track and to give you some idea of where we're going this evening. We're going to look, first of all, at the myths surrounding grief. And then we'll, we'll, there's six myths. We'll look at some of the, at the natural flow of grief and then what makes grief difficult. A little bit about the children, although talking about grief and childhood is a, is a whole separate, we could do a full talk on, on that subject. And then what hurts in the grief recovery process and what helps. <coughs> I've been doing grief counseling now for over 10 years. So a lot of the information I've had is from people who have been suffering themselves. If we look first of all at that first topic, the myths. Six myths. The first one, don't feel bad. You might have heard this comment or it might even have been made to you. Don't feel bad, your granny had a long life. Or don't feel bad, your dad's in a better place. Don't feel bad, at least you didn't suffer. Someone made that comment to uh, a friend of my sister's not too long ago. Her daughter had been involved in a very, very serious road traffic accident. Her daughter was in intensive care, and someone said to my sister's friend, well, uh, don't feel bad now, she's, at least she's not, she's still alive. Now, of course, the person who said that was saying it for comfort, 
my sister's friend, but it didn't comfort her because she felt absolutely devastated. Don't feel bad is one, just one of the many comments that are totally unhelpful. And of course we are going to feel bad. We are going to feel bad and it's a natural, most natural response to loss. We're going to feel bad possibly for a very long time. Showing our feelings is natural and we have to be prepared to feel bad but it doesn't mean to say that we give in totally to our feelings for years and years and years and we'll talk a little bit more about that later but we acknowledge to ourselves that this is a very this is a terrible situation and that our hearts are breaking so that first myth don't feel bad we need to dispel that myth because we will feel bad for a very long time the second myth is related to that one. Time heals all wounds. And that might be the single most dramatically inaccurate piece of information that is around the whole topic of grief. We've heard it many times. You'll feel better in time. This time next year, you know, you'll, you'll be on the road to recovery. It won't be so bad. And of course, like most false beliefs, there is a little smidgen of truth there. Recovery from loss and completion of emotional pain does happen within a framework of time. However, there's a world of difference between time healing a wound and a wound healing in time. Time by itself cannot and does not heal anything. I think of the husband who goes to his wife's grave every day at noon he puts on his white shirt, his tie and his suit and he goes to the grave and his wife has been dead for 10 years. For him, has time healed his wound? No. Time does not, time alone does not heal. But the passage of time can only heal as we process our grief and as we do the work of grief. And it is hard work. And as we deal with the enormity of our pain. Some people will say, ask me that question, how long does it take uh, to recover? And of course no one can answer that question because our, our grief is all is unique to each individual person. Two years, maybe five years, um, who knows. Third myth, you should be over it now. Being over it, well that's a sensitive statement when it comes to grief. In many cases, we're never over a loss. We just learn to cope with that big gaping hole in our lives. The gap's always there. In my own situation, my father died um, in uh, 1981. And after all this time, that big gap is still there. My mother also died in 1989. The gap is there. We learn to live with our losses. And of course, memories are triggered on every corner. One widow who had been married for 50 years and she's healthily grieving. She often cries, she, she goes to church, she cries in church and some might say, oh isn't it a shame she's not really coping. And of course she is coping. She is coping. The public sector doesn't help with it, does it? 
How many days do we get off if we work in the public sector? We get three days leave. And that's for a person within our own nuclear family. Extended family doesn't even count. And if we think back to Victorian days, people grieved for one full year. They wore their black, men wore their black armbands and women dressed in black for a full year. Of course, that's much more realistic. Time, you should be over it now, is a hurtful myth. And we need to dispel it. We need to be kind to ourselves in the midst of grief and we need to be kind to others. Let's be realistic. Kind to our friends, kind to our family. And the fourth myth then, you must keep busy. The keep busy myth. That's so commonplace that I doubt if you haven't heard that one. You must get out more. Keep busy. Get involved in the gardening club. Go and visit somebody. Get busy. Keep busy. But it is very dangerous to follow a belief that myth that you must keep busy. Because keeping busy is a dangerous activity. It is in the midst of grief because it can create a serious illusion that we're actually doing something about our grief. We're throwing ourselves into activity and the days or weeks are passing and we think that we've done something constructive. But what we're actually doing is just displacing our grief. We're getting involved in our work. Time is passing. Our grief is set up there on the top shelf and we're not doing anything about it. And maybe then another tragedy comes into our life and that grief comes tumbling down. I think of Anne. Her husband died suddenly. Anne got married late in life and she had a very, very happy marriage. But she only had 12 or 13 years with her husband. And then he died very suddenly and very tragically. Just shortly after he died, Anne's mother became ill. And Anne moved, sort of lived half time with her mother and half time in her own house. And then her mother died after four years. After her mother died, Anne was totally devastated. And she realized then that the grief that she was feeling for her mother was actually also the grief that she had displaced regarding her own husband's death. It was a double grief. And of course losses add up. She had unwittingly been displacing her own grief over her husband by caring, keeping busy, caring for her husband. Keeping very, very busy. And that keep keeping busy uh, myth is it's dangerous for those who are achievement orientated and who are type A personalities who like to have a list of things to do, tick them off and keep task focused. Those who have workaholic tendencies. I think of one uh, uh, father who contacted me, uh, he wanted me to, to uh, counsel his daughter. They had a terrible tragedy within their family. Their son had been killed in a road traffic accident. And the dad on the phone said to me, that Brenda, I think I'm dealing, um, I think I'm dealing, you know, pretty well with, with, with my grief, uh, but I want you to see my daughter. 
and uh, the daughter had been, there just two in the family, the daughter had been out of the country whenever her brother had been tragically killed. And we did a lot of work with her daughter and she did move through, she was getting married, uh, which had really brought her grief again to light uh, because the thought of being married, getting married and her brother not being there was obviously very, very poignant for her. But whenever I brought the family together, dad, mom, daughter, just to, to talk about the whole uh, situation, I absolutely realized that, that her father was totally stuck in his grief and had kept busy. As his wife had said, um, John here has held our family together. He's been there for us. He has been our strong man in the midst of this situation. But his grief was right. He had, he had not moved in his grief after two years. He was totally stuck in the grief process. And what, what happened was that he had been keeping busy. And he said himself, I still cannot look at a photograph of my son. I still can't do that. And uh, he realized that he, he was stuck. We're so tempted to keep busy to turn our focus onto other things because it's so painful. Doing the work of grief is a painful activity. And so we want to cut ourselves off from contact, keep busy, and we pay a very high price for that if we do that. Rachel did that. Rachel's um, best friend had uh, a single woman and her best friend uh, had died uh, of a terminal illness. And Rachel, for four years after her death, had uh, worked really, really hard, was involved in her, uh, she was a nurse, she worked really hard. She spent every minute working. She wasn't working then, she was visiting people or she was involved in the church. Four years later, she had a breakdown. She had to take time off work. And as she was seeing her counselor, she realized this is, un this is unresolved grief. This is why I'm having this breakdown because she hadn't processed her own grief. Keeping busy is a very dangerous thing. Myth number five, tears are a sign of weakness. Edith's mother-in-law said this to her. Edith's husband died uh, in his early 40s. Edith was left with six children. We're involved in working with those children and then with Edith herself. And Edith said this to me, her mother-in-law said to her, when you're coping, I'm coping. So think of the pressure on Edith. No room for her to cry, no room for her to share her memories. She actually couldn't talk about her husband to her mother-in-law because she knew that that would upset her. So she had to keep, and that, that actually prevented her from, from um, grieving appropriately. Tears are a sign of witness. In Northern Ireland, we're Stoics, I swear. We're Stoics by nature. We don't often cry in public. And we certainly often, many, many of us don't cry in front of our families. And in family grief, I would see this as I, grieve, as I counsel grieving families, parents often fear to cry in front of their children. They feel they need to protect their children from their, the depth of their own emotions. I remember counselling a little boy, he was eight, 
Um, he had witnessed very tragically the death of his sister. He'd been in the living room. He'd looked out the window. A road traffic accident. He'd witnessed the whole thing. And um, this was when I was working with a psychologist in Bangor. And we do crisis intervention and grieving <coughs> support. And the family had contacted us because the little boy who was attending one of our schools hadn't cried. And the parents were very concerned. And when we talked to this little boy, I remember him well, he said, uh, My dad doesn't cry, so why should I? And of course, the, was his dad crying? Of course his dad was devastated and his dad was crying, but he was going into his bedroom and closing the door and uh, crying in, in that situation. What we had to do actually to facilitate this little boy, Robert, was to get family together and say, this has been a devastating experience for our family and we're all united in our grief and we all feel extremely sad and when, we, when we're sad we cry and it did help that little boy to, to be released and to see his dad crying and uh, to, to let him realise that, that the big boys don't cry statement is, uh, is a lie there's a tremendous power in tears and they're a source of strength not weakness. Tears speak more profoundly than words in a situation when we're grieving. We cry with those who are suffering that is a much more profound communication to that person than if we talk and talk and talk. They're God's gift to us I believe. It's a release of emotion. One pastor whose wife died said, we need to cry for half an hour uh, every day. 3,875 times, he said. He quantified it simply because he was talking about the importance of grieving and the quantity of tears. So when tears come, instead of us feeling bad for sharing them, we should rejoice. Crying with our friends is very, very powerful. So, five minutes. Don't feel bad. Time heals all wounds. You should be over it now. You must keep busy. Tears are a sign of weakness. And the last one. It's a sin to grieve. Or Christians should not grieve as others. And of course that's from that verse in Thessalonians in the New Testament. Christians should not grieve as others who have no hope. But only half of the verses often quoted, Christians should not grieve as others. It's a sin to grieve, some people think. They believe that lie. They believe that we're disappointing God. They believe that we shouldn't be devastated because our loved one is in heaven. And of course there's two aspects to this. The truth is, we will experience the dark night of the soul. Everyone will grieve. Death will come to all of us. And God understands that. He knows about separation. He understands our grief. And he is there to comfort us, as we'll see later. To walk with us in our path of suffering. But secondly, we do have hope. We have the hope of heaven. The whole verse needs to be quoted. Christians should not grieve as others who have no hope. We have hope because we have the hope of heaven, with the hope of eternal life, with the hope of reunion with our loved one. 
with the hope of the resurrection to comfort our hearts and assure us that our believing loved ones are not lost to us eternally. We grieve certainly, but God walks with us in our grief. He cares for us in our grief, and we have hope. Those are the myths. Now, let's just uh, consider for a moment what what does it mean when I when I talk about the natural flow of grief? Well, there are many writers who have uh, written on the subject of grief, and it is helpful to actually think of stages in grief. Now, it's not rigid. It's not stage one, two, three, and four, but it is helpful to put a bit of a structure on our own grief and to be prepared for what may happen. There's one author who's very, very good, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she talks in terms of four stages. Now, I'm sure these are very familiar to you, but I will go through each one in turn. Uh, The first stage is stage one. There's the initial impact, shock, denial. And that shock, death comes, when it comes, it catches us unawares. For many, the loss is so overwhelming that our emotional systems just break. They shut down because the pain is too great to tolerate. And I believe that shock is God's mechanism to, to, to protect our minds so that we have a time to adjust to the news. My dad died suddenly at age 57. And I remember, I was a student at the time, I remember calmly, three weeks after his death, going into the psychology office there at Queen's in Lennoxville. And uh, there were three secretaries in the office, and I knew them quite well. I remember going in very calmly saying to them, oh, you know, my dad died on the 16th of March, and this is what happened. And he was um, in our good room, and he had... um, a touch of angina, but nobody thought it was very serious. And I went on and told them exactly what had happened. He had gone and he was taken to the hospital later that night and died of a massive heart attack. And whenever I was telling these uh, secretaries, I remember this very well. I remember them looking at one another. They said nothing. They looked at one another, and I'm sure they were thinking, this has not sunk in with the students. Brenda does not understand what has happened. And of course, they're absolutely right. But then nine months later, I was at a wedding. And a friend of mine who, who I hadn't seen came up to me and she said, Oh, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. And of course, then I burst into tears in the, in the middle of this reception. And when I got myself headed up, she said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Brenda, for upsetting you. And uh, so I said, look, I would have been far more upset if he hadn't mentioned uh, my father's death. But, but that shock actually lasted a long time for me personally as a student, and it does for many students. They're away from home, you live in this fantasy land, everything's okay, you're at university, and then you go home at the weekend and the reality strikes. It's the same for many, many people. So that first stage of shock can last for, for anything from weeks to months. Denial is a defense mechanism. Um, 
people, I think of the widower who's still setting the table for his wife. He cannot come to terms with her loss. She, he is in denial. He's pretending to himself. That's stage one. And it can last for weeks or, or months. Stage two, then, I want you to think in terms of an inverted bell curve. And stage two and three is at, is at the bottom of this curve, and stage four is up the other side. Stage two is that stage where you're wrestling with the pain, and there's tremendous emotions at this stage. The full impact has been felt. And we can display a whole range of emotions. Anger is one of them. Possibly anger at the doctors or whoever caused the accident. Anger at God for allowing it to happen. Anger at, the, at themselves. If they feel that there's something they could have done. Fear. C.S. Lewis described his grief as he said, no one told me grief was so much like fear. That continual knot in your stomach, that continual feeling of a loss of control, of a lack of insecurity, of lack of security, tremendous feelings of insecurity, being afraid. Edith told me that her six children, she had um, four girls and two boys. Her 13-year-old boy was con- con- consistently... Uh, ringing her on the mobile saying, Mom, where are you today? Uh, have you got home safely? How did it go today? Tremendous fear for her safety after his bad ride. And there is a fear also of losing our minds because we can't remember anything. We have to write everything down. Time seems to lose track of time. One widow whose husband died in August couldn't understand why there was Christmas decorations around because for her, time had stood still. And there are four ways that grief can affect us, physically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. If you think physically, first of all, of course we know these things. Sleepless nights, loss of appetite, heartache turning to headaches, especially in children. Now think of the three-year-old whose aunt died to the neighbour of ours back home in um, Port Cornone and I went to visit them and uh, the mum was saying that I don't understand why this little, my little three-year-old keeps holding her elbow and she complains of a sore elbow and in fact she didn't have a sore elbow but her grief was displaced to a physical symptom and uh, she couldn't articulate her feelings of loss for her aunt So physically, a lot of symptoms there. Psychologically then, there can be a loss of a sense of identity. Uh, I was Thomas Kelso's daughter. She was Sam Taylor's wife. Um, That loss of identity is actually very acute for both children and adults if both parents die. There's that feeling of being an orphan. Family of origin is very important for a sense of identity. And then for parents who lose a child, there's that sense of identity that's lost, the mother, the father. Socially, there's a total loss of interest in all social activity, the real apathy. Can't be bothered. People can't be bothered to no energy to write letters or read. C.S. Lewis said it couldn't be bothered reading all of those letters that came. Just a total apathy. 
and it's a of course it's a vicious circle. And many people think, well, I need to leave them alone, need to give people their privacy, and yet they're crying out for company. And then spiritually, often church is where we become most emotional, and many will avoid going to the very place where they will find or could find support and help. And uh, when I think of, of Janet, whose, uh, whose husband died uh, just two years ago when she's got a little boy who's seven, and uh, she, she actually moved uh, churches, and she said the two things that really helped her were that she went to this church and she received very, very good teaching, and that helped her to, to understand God's truth and um, God's sovereignty. And the other thing that really helped her were the people. The love, she said, that those people showed her and her son. New people into the little community. And the love, she said, those two, the love and truth being taught were the two things that really, really helped her. That's stage two. Stage three, then, again, at the bottom of that bell curve, we're facing the pain. And... Um, there can be, for some people, a tremendous sense of panic when the reality of loss truly hits us. We realize that we have to go on alone. There's a fear of losing tangible remembrances. Oh, now, where, where's my husband's watch? Where's his passport? All those things that I... Where did I put those things? Where's, where are the rings? Those tangible remembrances very important to have them all together. There might be feelings of guilt. Did I do enough? Could something else have been done? The what ifs or the, the if onlys. And at this stage, there's a tremendous feeling of loneliness and isolation. And for many, they, they say it's the loneliness that's the worst. And many feel powerless to do anything about it. Maybe they've been married for 40 years and they've never in their life had to seek company. Because they've always had their husband with them. They've never had to seek company and now they are bereft. So that loneliness is a tremendous difficulty for many people. And depression can result. The feelings of great sadness and worthlessness. No point in going on. And we need, do need to watch out for this at this third stage of grief. And what people do need is that sense of purpose and value and self-worth. At this stage, we also need to be careful to consider the whole issue of forgiveness. Those who are grieving need to deal with the whole issue of forgiveness. It could be forgiving the doctors if there was any delay. Or forgiving the perpetrators if it was a road traffic accident. Or forgiving the person who died if it was a suicide. Or forgiving themselves if, if there's a perceived lack of action on their part. Forgiveness is crucial at that stage of the grief process. And then stage four. We're reorganizing, we're going up the side of the bell curve, up to the other side, reorganizing our life around the loss, living in the present and not in the past or in the future. 
there is, we begin to organize our lives. And uh, for the bereaved person, their life will never be the same again. They learn to live with the gap. C.S. Lewis said this, when his wife died, he again married late in life. He had a very, very happy marriage, but it was a short marriage. And he said that life after his wife died was like living with an amputated limb. He was never going to be a two-legged man again, but he would be able to to get about. We live more at this stage, stage four, as we're recovering from loss, living in the present and in the future, not in the past. But still remembering the past, holding on to those precious memories and sharing them with others and being able to share them then without the same pain that we would have in the previous stages. For um, for children, part of the recovery process can be actually preparing a memory book. And at the moment I'm working with a 16-year-old whose uh, sister died two years ago. And um, it was a, they had a very, very close relationship. And this 16-year-old is a quiet big fellow who doesn't, who hasn't really communicated. His parents are, are concerned about him. And he's preparing a memory book of his sister. Now, this fellow is a perfectionist, so it's a slow process. And I've said to him, now, we need to have a time scale for this, a bit of a deadline. And he's also a procrastinator. So the deadline, I think, is the 15th of December, the next time, you know, we'll come together. So, but it is a wonderful, the process of doing the memory book is actually a healing process for him. And so he's coming to terms with his life now without his sister. He's looking back to their good memories, talking about her personality, sharing about her and about their relationship. So that's stage four. There is hope and there's healing. And there is an opportunity then to reach out to others uh, once we have actually recovered from our grief. A couple of questions then just to leave with. What impacts the grief recovery process? Well, there's a number of things. Of course, the nature of the relationship is the first one. Everyone experiences loss at 100% intensity. And our grief, each grief experience is unique just because of the quality of the relationship with our loved ones. And it's a simple equation. The more intense the relationship, the more, the greater the grief. And I want to just think of four, quickly, four family relationships where grief is particularly intense. And of course, the first one is the death of a spouse. And especially if the, last is, if the relationship has lasted a long time, and even if it hasn't, I think of Edith, who dated her husband, started dating when she was 15, he died when she was 38. They had all those years together, and a very, very happy marriage. And uh, I think of another widow, married for 50 years, and he had been her friend, her financial advisor, her protector, her lover. She, he had just a want, she had a wonderful relationship with him, a very exclusive relationship. The more exclusive the relationship between a couple, the more difficult it is for that one person then to survive once their spouse has died. Death of a parent, of course, that's the biggest loss for children and it brings tremendous insecurity 
into their lives with a tremendous fear for the future. And even as an adult, it can be an unrecognized loss, especially if your parents die when they're older. They say, oh, well, didn't, uh, didn't they have a long life? He was 89 when he died. Didn't they live? He lived a long time. An adult orphan. The death of a parent, very, very significant. And for children nowadays, also the death of a grandparent, extremely significant, because grandparents have so much to do now with the bringing up of our children. The death of a child is one of the most devastating losses, <coughs> a tremendously devastating loss for a parent, because it's a loss out of turn, it's an unpredictable loss, and many parents are overwhelmed by false guilt. I should have protected my child, I should have done something to protect them. The death of a child. And the death of a sibling. When a sibling dies, we lose part of ourselves, and often again it's an unrecognized loss. Uh, one friend of mine whose only brother died, often people would say to her, well, how are your parents coping with this? How are they doing? How's your mother doing? But actually they would forget to say, well, that's how are you doing? And this girl was a, she was a single girl, very, very close to her brother and his children. And uh, sometimes the loss of a sibling is an unrecognized loss. They, um, I think of, of one, two sisters. Two sisters who are married to two brothers. And um, they lived together side by side for almost 65 uh, years. And brought the children up together. And then one sister died. 